welcome to another edition of the Divine Warrior Agency Podcast. It is November 2019. I'm your host, Daishihan Jason Steves. Today, we have a guest with us that we're going to be interviewing named Michael Martin. His specialty is the polygraph machine. And the reason we're doing this is because this month, with my own students at least, we've been diving into how to detect lies on other people how to prevent from showing that you're lying, how to circumvent the polygraph machine. So I thought it would be a good idea to get an expert on that could tell us more about it. So without further ado, here we go. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself? All right. Well, um, uh, my name is Michael Martin. I own a company called the Global Polygraph Network. We're a worldwide uh, polygraph service. Uh, we provide polygraphs and referrals to examiners uh, all around the world. Uh, I'm not sure what else you'd uh, you need to know. I've been in this business for uh, for about 35 years. Uh, personally, done over 10,000 exams. Been qualified as an expert in court for polygraph. Uh, written a couple of textbooks in polygraph. I do some teaching for polygraph. Uh, uh, you know, I have about uh, about seventy examiners uh, that uh, that I supervise. Nice, very uh, that's nice. what we do. Good, good. So I guess we'll start with: Do you do any lie detection without using your polygraph machine, or like say from body language? No, as a matter of fact, that would be a violation of any all the standards that we have. Uh, we do have to uh, only. Uh, come up with a result based on the data that the polygraph collects. Anything else would be uh, not scientifically supported. The polygraph is now an evidence-based uh, procedure, so we really don't do anything that is not supported by research and evidence. I see. Okay. Well, that's good to know. I had no idea. Um, what are the machines called, actually? Uh, they're called polygraph instruments. Um and we don't call them lie detectors because lie detector itself is a sort of a generic word that can cover everything from, uh, you know, uh, water torture to uh, voice stress to, uh, uh, you know, Ouija boards. I mean, it, it can apply to anything that's used to detect lies. Well, polygraph is just a specific type of lie detector. And we don't even like to call it a lie detector. Uh, it's, it's really measuring just uh, numerous changes. Okay. in a person's physiology uh, that we then uh, statistically connect to uh, research on the truthfulness or untruthfulness of the individuals. Okay, okay. Um, what is the practice of lie detection called, anyway? Uh, it's called, uh, it's, it's currently called psychophysiological detection of deception. And that was probably changed about, uh, oh, five or ten years ago. Uh, just to put us in line with the other sciences, um, okay. polygraph is, 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 is kind of a generic term. It actually applies to any type of medical equipment that records multiple things at once. So it's really not that specific to what we do, but uh, okay. PDD testing is more specifically what we do. And it uh, uh, since we've uh, gotten a lot more support of the scientific community, uh, or we're using a lot more scientific terminology to describe the things that we do. Was that an abbreviation I heard you use there? PDD? Yes, PDD stands for the uh, psycho Psychophysiological Detection of Deception. Wow, that's a mouthful. 
Yes, it is. That's why we say PDD. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, polygraph instrument. Okay. So, what is the accuracy of a polygraph instrument? All right. Well, um, there there is no accuracy of an instrument itself. Uh, you know, the instrument is just a tool, like a hammer. There's no accuracy or inaccuracy of a hammer. It's it's just a tool that the person uses. Uh, there's actually three three in integral parts to the polygraph process. One, of course, is using the appropriate equipment, uh, but more importantly is using a technique that's been validated uh, you know, through research and, uh, and, and the scientific community. And uh, once the data is collected, then applying a validated scoring method to the data. Okay. Uh, so there's actually three different parts to the, uh, to the overall process, and all those are, are, are important. Uh, the equipment really hasn't changed too much in the last, uh, you know, 50 years or so. Well, there's a, there's a few new components that we have added. Uh, the biggest change was, of course, going digital. About uh, 15 years ago, everybody went digital, and computers are now running the software and the uh, inf- and collecting the information for us. It doesn't do the interpreting, uh, okay. but it does collect the data in a much cleaner way. Uh, hmm. Back then, we we had uh, the old suitcase style polygraphs with the uh, the ink pens running on the paper and uh, what a mess they were Um, and frankly uh, you know once you ended up with that piece of paper that is all you had to work with there's nothing you could do with it you couldn't analyze it uh, any more than you know get out a ruler and and measure things so fortunately with digital we can amplify anything that we see so if, if we have a little wavy line we're trying to look at uh, you know, we can amplify it 10 or 100 times, and those little tiny waves that weren't visible before now become these big mountains, and we can we have a lot more data to analyze. Mm. Yeah, I um, think when everyone that's, that's the biggest change is the uh, is the the digitizing of uh, of polygraph. There's also been a lot of changes in the uh, in the science and in the uh, in the procedure and scoring. So uh, yeah. more of the behind-the-scenes changes have been not with the equipment so much, but with the methodologies. I think when most people think of one of those instruments, they do picture the little pencils on the on the paper and stuff. And <laughs> I, At least that's what I yep. do. <laughs> yep, uh, we still get the graphs, but they're now on a computer screen. Yeah, okay. Are polygraph instruments admissible in court? Uh, they're actually admissible in many courts. Um, they do meet the standards for scientific evidence. Uh, the problem is, is that the uh, scientific community doesn't look at current research. They're looking at research from, you know, 20 years ago. And frankly, you know, polygraph was not as reliable 20 years ago as it is today. I see. So if you're looking at 20 and 30 year old uh, research and, and, and studies and data, uh, you're not going to come out with as um, reliable uh, a study as you will if you look at something that's uh, a lot more recent since all the changes have been made. Hmm. Um, so polygraph it can be admissible in, in many courts. Uh, you know, in the U.S., it's sort of state by state. Some states allow it, some don't. Uh, sometimes it's admissible in criminal courts and, uh, and not admissible in criminal courts and perhaps in civil courts. Family courts, domestic issues, uh, you know, child abuse type cases. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times, where it's not used at trial, it might be used uh, for sentencing or uh, you know, for witnesses or things like that. So, you know, every 
jurisdiction, every state, every judge even has their own opinion about polygraph. And if they're not willing to go through the actual admissibility hearing to hear all the scientific evidence, which most of them don't want to go through all that, because mm-hmm. that'll take days to present all the scientific background, uh, you know, that they, they just have their own opinion. They'll say, well, no, I don't like polygraph. I'm not going to allow it here. Did I read that? So we have... Did I read you had a forensics background? Are you? Are... Uh, the uh, we are polygraph examiners are considered uh, forensic psychophysiological okay. detection of deception examiners. Okay. Okay. Uh, you know, every test we do, uh, we try to do to the best standards possible. And there are published standards out there, both by the American Polygraph Association and uh, ASTM. Uh, American Society for Testing and Materials, which sort of uh, set standards for pretty much any type of scientific process. Okay. So what's your opinion about beating the polygraph? Is it possible for someone to beat it, quote, unquote? Um, I mean, if you say possible, yeah, yes, anything is possible. Any type of test can be beaten, you know, a urine test, a... Uh, you know, an IQ test. I mean, there's all there's always trickery in ways to beat any type of a test. Uh, mm-hmm. The issue is 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 can an average person uh, do that? And the answer is no. Uh, there are so many things that we measure simultaneously. It is impossible to change really more than one of those intentionally. Yeah. Uh, and and it's pretty obvious. We see when people try to manipulate the exams. Uh, and not only that, they, they don't know when to do uh, what they're trying to do because the polygraph is measuring changes between questions in the test. So to beat a polygraph, you have to do two things simultaneously. You have to reduce the amount of reactions you generate on the relevant or primary, you know, let's call them the crime questions, but uh, you also have to increase the reactions you produce on the non-crime questions. Mm. So you're having to do two things simultaneously while trying to recognize which questions are which, and they're not always that easy. Uh, uh, they also have to be done at the right time. Uh, people think that the reactions that people produce happen when you tell the lie. Well, that's actually not correct. The, the, the reactions occur when you realize you're going to have to lie. Okay, okay. That happens long before the time that the answer is given. Mm. Yeah, that's true, right? So uh, would, would lie detection still work on someone who would, like, say, a compulsive liar? Okay, well, a compulsive liar is really just somebody that can't help themselves lying. They still know that they're lies. They still know that there's consequences to being caught, with, caught in that lie. And really, that's all we need for polygraph to work is, uh, you know, we need a healthy person. We need uh, someone who knows reality. You know, we obviously can't test someone who's schizophrenic or mm-hmm. somebody who doesn't really understand re- reality. Um, uh, but as long as they know what they did, <coughs> excuse me, what they know, if they know what they did or didn't do, and they understand what the consequence is to being caught in that particular thing, uh, then the test typically works fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so the test works fine on, uh, on sociopaths and even, uh, even psychopaths in, in a lot of ways. Uh, uh, seriously mentally ill, though, we, uh, we, do have, we do have problems with because they're, you know, they're not grounded in reality. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
And we're not testing on ground truth. We're testing on what the individual perceives as ground truth. Yeah, that's right. So if I ask you, did you steal the car? And you honestly, uh, you know, don't remember stealing the car. Some other personality of yours stole that car. Well, I mean, you're going to pass the test because your reality is that you did not steal the car. Hmm. So before you administer a test, what kind of conditions do you think need to be met for it to work best, like pre-testing from a pre-test point of view, I guess? Well, there's both both physical and emotional uh, mental issues. The physical issues, of course, we want a person uh, healthy, uh, you know, well-rested, um, you know, eat a meal. Uh, blood sugar plays a role in, uh, in, in the ability of polygraph to work as well as it can. Um, we make sure there's no physical issues that would prevent us from from getting a good uh, a good recording. If a person has a let's say a, a leg twitch, and you know every five seconds their leg jumps, you know that's not somebody we're going to be able to test very well because you know every five seconds we're going to see everything change, mm-hmm. and uh, you know we have to make sure that they're physically able to take the test. Uh, of course, there's liability issues, so we make sure the person is uh, is physically healthy enough to take, take an exam, you know, no recent uh, heart attacks and uh, things of that nature. Hmm. Um, and then there's the mental issues where we have to make sure the person uh, has cognitive abilities that are uh, normal. Uh, they have to be able to understand reality, be able to carry on a normal conversation, uh, be able to understand the explanation of polygraph. Um, uh, you know, it's typically why we don't test anyone under 12, uh, because their uh, their brains just aren't uh, developed enough for the parts of the brain to function that we need them to function, and for them to really understand the uh, the nuances of of the, of the exam. Mm-hmm. And I assume that you start with like baseline questions. Well, they're all mixed throughout the exam. So when we design a test. Uh, we review all the questions that we've designed with that person before the test begins, and that's important because surprise is an emotion that we need to avoid in the testing process. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, the questions themselves are sort of scattered throughout the test in uh, different orders uh, each time we go through. And we typically go through an exam uh, you know, three to five times. Really? And the order of the questions is changed each time, right? Okay. Do you have, like, standard baseline questions that you usually always go with? Uh, I mean, every examiner has their own personal ones, but uh, the, the the purpose of what we call uh, neutral questions is just to uh, you know, make sure that there is that there is a stable baseline. Okay. If a person can't give us a baseline, uh, and they're not really very well tested. If I ask you, "Are you sitting down?" and you have a serious reaction to that, I mean, you're not you're not going to be a candidate for testing. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so we so we do ask questions like that, you know, are the lights on, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, you know, interesting. We don't ask questions like, uh, you know, is your name Robert? Because uh, you know, people are sometimes called different things than they are than their given names. And so, we, we, we when we talk neutral questions, we really mean neutral. There's no uh, emotional effect to them at all. Mm. Okay. Uh, have you ever had inconclusive tests, and what does that look like? All right. Well, uh, 
Before I tell you about inconclusive results, uh, you have to understand what Polygraph is doing. We're establishing the probability of a person's truthfulness based on the data. So let's say just uh, uh, hypothetically a particular type of test I run, uh, the threshold is you have to score a plus three or higher to pass the test, and you have to score a minus three or lower to fail the test. Well, anything between a plus three and a minus three then becomes inconclusive because it's not strong enough in one direction or the other to make a, uh, a decision. The, the, the probabilities are just too close to 50-50 to make any kind of decision, so we don't. It's a safety feature. If we didn't have a, uh, an inconclusive range in a polygraph, then we would be making uh, decisions on very, very small changes, which at some point become subjective. You can have two examiners looking at the same chart, and they may be they may be differ by a couple of points on their on their overall score. Uh, you know, that would mean that it would become very easy for two examiners to differ on the outcome of the test. Where if you have the inconclusive zone, then a small difference doesn't change a test from truthful to deceptive. It just makes it uh, possibly inconclusive, which is not a difference. So inconclusive is not an error. It's it's actually a safety feature built into the test. Okay, okay. What uh, I'm seeing here, do you call it polygraphy? What's the name of the art that you practice? Or is it uh, the... polygraphy? Is 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 what we call it? Okay, good. Polygraphy. Um, why is it? Why do you think it's important these days? Like, why do you use it? Why do you do it? I'm sorry. Say, say the question again. Why do you think the the procedure of polygraphy is important? Like, uh, uh, well, it's because there there have to be standards for any scientific procedure. There have to be uh, standards, and uh, finally uh, published, of course. If you don't follow the standards, then uh, yeah, how do you know that a test wasn't uh, you know, done correctly? Uh, you know, it wasn't man manipulated in some way by either the person taking the test or the examiner himself. Uh, you follow all these standards, violation uh, becomes uh, much less likely. Errors, uh, errors go down uh, in any evidence-based procedure. Uh, you know, we have to rely on, uh, okay, we, we, we collect the data, we convert the data into numerical scores, we take the scores, compare them to uh, the, uh, determine the probabilities of a person's truthfulness based on those numbers, and we, uh, we provide the numbers. Uh, it, we try not to, we're actually trying to get away from the whole concept of uh, truth or untruth, because because since polygraph is a probabilistic science, it is not about the absoluteness of truthfulness. It is about the probability of truthfulness, which which is different. Mm. You know, I mean, if I say a person is being uh, truthful, that's different than me saying there is a 94% probability that that person is being truthful. Uh, so the, we are trying to move away from making decisions that are not based on science. If I say there's a 94% probability, you know, that doesn't mean in absolute terms that the person is being truthful. It means that, yeah, there's a there's a six out of 100 chance that he, the person is not being truthful. Mm. And that's really how, common... we, how we're trying to evolve the science. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I heard the word science come up. So what is... 
some common myths that people have about uh, polygraph testing? Uh, well, one of them you mentioned already that it's not uh, a polygraph's not admissible in court, and it's actually admissible in, in yeah. quite a few courts. And if you talk to most examiners that have been around for a while, uh, most of them have testified in court. So, and obviously, that means that uh, it is admissible in, in some courts. Um, another myth is that uh, the polygraph is easy to beat. Uh, it, it would be very difficult to beat, and uh, uh, even with training uh, to how to beat it, reading up on it, things like that, you're not going to know what you're creating on those charts unless you actually practice with an examiner. So you're talking about training plus, uh, you know, weeks of practice, and even then there's no guarantee that that would work. So easy to beat is definitely one of the myths. Um there's a myth that uh, the polygraph is not accessible to the general public. It's something only used by law enforcement and government, and that's not true at all. There's a very large segment of the polygraph population that is in private practice, and that's what we're here for is to do testing for individuals who have been accused of things or, uh, or have no way to prove something that has no yeah. evidence uh, you know, he said, she said situations. You're accused of, a uh, person's accused of touching their child. Uh, you know, how do you prove that you didn't do something like that? Well, that's where we come in. So we, we are here uh, for the public as well as, uh, you know, we do government contracting and that sort of thing. Um, another myth is that you can ask all the questions you want. That's not, that's not true at all. The, in fact, the more questions that you ask in a polygraph, the less accurate that the test becomes. Um, so one question uh, is actually the most accurate way to do a polygraph. That will give you the highest accuracy in excess of 90%. And it's not just asking one question one time. It's asking that same question in many ways, many times. So it's actually repeated multiple ways. Uh, so that's, a, you know, people come in with a list. I've got these hundred questions I want you to ask. Well, I can't do that. That's, that's a TV show. That's not reality. So those are probably the most common myths we get. Uh, what kind of qualifications would I need to be a polygraph tester that is accepted in official capacities? Well, you really just need to go to polygraph school, which is, uh, you know, attending uh, one of the accredited training schools. It takes about, uh, it takes about uh, 10 to 12 weeks to go through polygraph school. Um, the problem is that once you graduate polygraph school, you still haven't done a real test. Mm -hmm. uh, so at that point, you're going to need to uh, complete whatever internship you're going to need to to be more accepted. And uh, some locations have licensing that specify what those internships are and some areas that don't require a license. Uh, you know, it's really just a matter of experience going back to school. Uh, most examiners go back to school every year and, uh, you know, catch up on, on the latest uh, updates in, in the science and the, and the techniques. And, uh, i give you an example. We, uh, uh, back in the uh, mid-80s, they came out with, uh, the government came out with a study on polygraph that was fairly unfavorable. And the polygraph community said, uh, oh, wait a minute, this, this, this doesn't sound right. Let's take a look at it. And what they found out was that um, you know, we're training examiners in maybe a dozen different polygraph techniques. And we realized that some were not very good. 
<laughs> and some were, were actually very good. So we said, okay, we have to stop using these techniques that aren't good. Uh, we call them validated. Uh, science has gotten behind them and, and researched the techniques themselves. So we have to eliminate the ones that didn't work. And so that one little change all by itself is eliminating these unreliable techniques, uh, you know, has, has done wonders for polygraph accuracy. Hmm. Uh, so to answer your question, um, you know, they look for experience. They look for, uh, you know, have you, has your uh, work been accepted in, uh, in, in a legal setting before? Have you maintained all your continuing education requirements? Uh, and that's really the basis. It doesn't require, a, you know, an advanced college degree. You don't even, uh, unless you're planning to work for the government, you don't even need a college degree at all. Hmm. Are there scams involving polygraph tests? Oh, absolutely there are scams. Uh, uh, there are uh, individuals that have uh, attempted to self-teach themselves polygraph uh, by getting books, uh, you know, by uh, maybe going to a lecture or two. Um, that doesn't teach you how to be a polygraph examiner, but there are these people that go out and uh, call themselves polygraph examiners. And frankly, if the, uh, the location where they are doesn't have a license, there's really nothing to stop them from doing that. Um, I see. You, know, you go to, uh, to California, which doesn't have a license, and you say, uh, never touched a polygraph in your life. You can call yourself a polygraph examiner and do tests for people and take money for it. There's, there's nothing to stop you from that. So, uh, uh, you know, we do have people like that. Uh, then we have the ones that um, pretend to be polygraph examiners, uh, but what they'll do is they'll tell you, well, uh, you know, a polygraph's going to cost you five or $600. For $150, i will do it over the phone for you. Oh, I see. And, uh, oh, I see. And, and I can just picture the guy over there flipping a quarter. Uh, you know, okay, what do you want to know? And uh, I'm going to give you your result and give me your credit card. And, and, and there you go. So uh, lots of scams, uh, mostly involving untrained examiners, holding themselves out as examiners. Hmm. Now, you know, hmm. you, so you have to look into uh, the examiners that you hire. If there's no licensing where they are, then you have to look at memberships, like uh, like the American Polygraph Association, for example. You can't belong to the APA without having graduated an accredited training school. So if you are one of these scam operators, um, they couldn't possibly join the APA. So that's a, a secondary way of finding out whether they may, might be legitimate. Say, they might say, no, I don't belong, I don't belong to any organizations like that. Uh, they're a... Uh, they're not one that I happen to belong to. Well, there's a reason we belong to them, is to, so we can prove to people that we are legitimate. Yeah, okay. What caught your interest in following this career path? Uh, well, I was actually a private investigator uh, way back in, the, uh, back in the early 80s. And uh, this sort of came up as an opportunity to take on as a sideline, learn something interesting, and... Uh, and uh, the boss I had at the time decided to send me to school. And I said, uh, great, I'll do that. And I went to school for it and I uh, just loved it. This was, uh, enjoyed it so, so much. Uh, you know, the, the expression goes, took it to, took to it like a duck to water. 
and I ended up uh, <laughs> ended up leaving that company and going to work for the school itself. And uh, then uh, then they started doing this full time. And the guy that sent you probably regretted it. <laughs> no, his uh, his business actually sort of tanked. Um, he, had oh, some, okay. he had some other business issues uh, within a former partner that he had to deal with. <laughs> so it was it was kind of a, a a safe route for me. So how did you come to be on MythBusters? I know you were on MythBusters, and probably. Um, no, well, obviously the guys that are listening to this probably don't know that, but I knew it ahead of time. What was that like? Oh, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. They, uh, I had done a lot of work for television prior to that, uh, done over 300 different, uh, TV shows, uh, TV appearances as an expert, uh, for, uh, mostly a lot of talk shows, but some of the court shows and some of the, uh, the news shows as well. Um, but I, I got a call from, uh, from from MythBusters looking for someone to do an experiment, and uh, they just simply came to me and said, "Look, we we want to try to prove. We want to see if we can beat a polygraph." I said, "Okay," but here's the conditions, and I had to lay out for them a mock crime scenario where we actually uh, force people to commit a minor crime. You know, take twenty bucks uh, out of a wallet. Uh, I think that was the scenario yeah. we used then. Uh, so we sent people uh, into this room, not knowing who was going to steal it and who uh, and who was not. Uh, and then my job was to find out, uh, okay, who who took the money and who didn't. And uh, setting up the scenario was important because you needed two things: you needed uh, uh, you needed to have a, a an adverse effect to being caught, uh, as real as real life would be. You know, you get caught stealing, you're going to you're going to be punished for that. So they had yeah. to come up with a punishment for them. And I think I think on MythBusters it was something like having to wash the cars or something. Yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, and there was also a reward for being able to pass a polygraph. And uh, I don't recall what the reward was, but um, anyway, that's we tried to set it up as much like real life as as possible, which uh, you know makes the test work uh, all that much better. And then hmm. uh, uh, yeah, then I went in and did the exams, and uh, actually it. Uh, it worked out extremely well. I uh, uh, I caught the ones who were lying. I caught the ones who were telling the truth, and uh, I didn't have a single error that day. Nice, nice. Yeah, I, I suppose they were a nice bunch to work with too. Were they? They were wonderful yeah. to work with. I figure, uh, yeah. very nice. Um, yeah. you know, it was a very long day on set. Uh, I did think we'd be out of there in in eight hours, but uh, that was wishful thinking. <laughs> Yeah, it was nice to see uh, to, to to be at their warehouse and see how things were working. They built they they didn't have a room to do the polygraph, so they actually had to get the plywood together and they built a room within their warehouse just so I could do the testing. I think I remember that actually. Yeah, yeah. Yep, with so, cameras and all that. Were you close by? Is that why they called you as opposed to someone next door? No, not at all. I'm an East Coaster, and uh, they're uh, they're in Sa- uh, San Francisco, so really? I had to fly out uh, to the West Coast for that. Okay, all right. So, what do you wish you had known when you first started out? Ah, uh, I think the thing that I really was unsure about is that I could make a living doing it. Mm. Um. 
for the first for the first ten or ten years or so that I was in this, uh, maybe even longer, uh, this was just a, a sideline for me. I was a private investigator. I was doing a few other things. Had a research business, and uh, I never really focused on polygraph. It was always something that was there, and I did I did a couple. I might do one every week or two weeks or so. And, it was never something that I considered to be a career. And then uh, uh, at one point, uh, it, it suddenly dawned on me that, uh, yes, it, uh, it, it's possible. This could be a career. And uh, began expanding the marketing and expanding the territory and uh, ended up buying a uh, – I, I was uh, – I learned to be a pilot among uh, all those miscellaneous things I was doing. <laughs> so I eventually uh, used that pilot license, ended up buying my own airplane so I could uh, travel around. Frankly, if you don't travel, you won't get that much work as a polygraph examiner. And uh, once I got that all set up, um, it, uh, it went to the point where I could survive on doing only polygraph. So that's hmm. what eventually happened. I suppose as a uh, private investigator, that's, that's a good tool to have in your toolbox too. So it's, it is, it is good. It's I I do pull on those, uh, those, uh, skills occasionally, but, uh, being a private investigator is not a, a job for the faint of heart, uh, not a job for someone who likes regular hours. Hmm. I I do like polygraph, uh, because of the regular hours, uh, quite a bit. Um, I can I can set my hours. I don't have to leave the house at three o'clock in the morning, or get home at three o'clock in the morning. Hmm. So, what are you curious about right now in your field that you haven't tackled yet? Uh, and because I, I do stay up on all the science, uh, there's really not much I'm not aware of. Uh, one thing I like about polygraph is that it is not. Um, Oh, what's the word? It, it, it has the ability to evolve. Mm-hmm. If you look at a modern polygraph instrument uh, and you plug in all the attachments that you have, that you're going to have on a person, there's always empty spaces. And what that means is if something new comes along that we can add as a sensor on the polygraph, we can add it to the polygraph and incorporate it into the system. For example, um, probably about uh, 10 years ago or so, uh, they realized that a plethysmograph uh, can give us some valid, uh, good, solid information on a person's uh, reactions in regards to truth or untruth. So what's happened now is most polygraph examiners use a plethysmograph uh, in addition to all the other sensors that they uh, they normally incorporate. So this is almost a, a standard piece of equipment now. And what I like is that we're very open to adding new things as science tells us, okay, that we can add this to the system. I mean, it gives us a lot more lines to look at, but that's good. More data is, is always better. So what is this plethysmograph you mentioned? What does that do? Okay. Um, one of the things that a person does uh, when they are threatened by something uh, is their body protects them by moving blood towards the inner organs. Uh, it's it's an, it's a it's it's a natural way of the body's attempt to protect itself. 
Um, and this is something that not every it has to happen to everyone, but in certain individuals, uh, this is how their body tries to protect them. And what we do is we have a plethysmograph. We put it on a uh, on a finger on the hand, and what it does is it tells us how much blood volume is going in and out of those fingers. Hmm. Uh, because if blood is rushing to the organs, it's leaving the fingers. Hmm. And so we get to monitor that uh, that that ebb and flow of uh, of blood volume. And if we see an unusual blood volume being drawn out of the fingers, it tells us uh, okay, there's a you know that gives us one more data point to incorporate into our score. And obviously, it's not something you can really control. I mean, if, yeah. I mean, how do you control the blood flow within your body? It's it's really not something that can be controlled by conscious thought. Huh. And I noticed, too, that uh, on the episode with Mythbusters, that um, they, I think I saw them with their feet on a pad of some sort. Like a pressure. Uh, that's correct. We, we do use motion sensors now as well, because uh, if you look up how to beat a polygraph, uh, almost all the techniques you read about will be physical, we call them physical countermeasures, which means the person is doing something with their body to yeah. make something look different. And that could be everything from pushing down with their feet to clenching their butt cheeks to uh, uh, shifting their weight around. To And there's a lot of different things that they try to explain. And and uh, in polygraph, we realized, well, these things actually are pretty effective. So let's find a way to defeat that. So we come up with all the motion sensors, and we can we can see when a person is trying to do that. And it becomes really obvious. If we see the blood pressure go up, but at the same time they, they push their foot down, well, well, that's telling me that that blood pressure increase is artificial. Hmm. I've heard of the uh, I've heard of the attack in the attack in your shoe. That's an old one I've heard about. Obviously, that wouldn't work with right. This. Yeah, that's that's an old wives' tale. The problem with that is that it, uh, you know, it's only painful the first couple of times. <laughs> yeah. After that, it's really not going to cause the same reaction. So, you know, because we run so many tests, I mean, we run a minimum of three up to five tests, which means you're going to be attached to the polygraph for up to, uh, you know, up to 30 minutes. You can't keep that up for 30 minutes. <laughs> no, I suppose Your body's not. just going to stop reacting to that, uh, to that pain. It's, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be obvious. Yeah, yeah. So is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't? Um, I suppose the only thing I'd like to comment on is, uh, is, uh, our biggest competitor in polygraph is the voice stress analysis industry. And, uh, you know, that's, there's a couple of manufacturers that came out with this equipment that supposedly measures micro tremors in the voice to detect lies. Mm. And, uh, and yes, it is. It does detect stress. The problem is, is that uh, stress does not mean they're lying. We, may, we, we have stressful people pass polygraphs all the time. Uh, so it, 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 there's very little scientific support to voice stress where there is on polygraph. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you look up research, the only research you're going to find behind voice stress is done by their own manufacturers. Ah, okay. Uh, the downside is it's cheap. Uh, you know, you can buy a, a voice stress unit for, you know, $1,000 or so and, and train on it uh, on a, in a weekend. 
So police departments, uh, they use it as an as an interrogation tool. They'll they'll do a voice dress on somebody and tell them they lied or or not, depending on what they feel like. If there's no standards to it, yeah. Um, and and they'll they'll and, uh, law enforcement say it works because they get confessions. Well, there's lots of things that can get you confessions. Hmm. Uh, you know, you tell you know you tell the population of people that you arrest that uh, that we know you're lying. Uh, you know, with a little device telling them so, it's 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 going to support that and and help them get a confession. Whether the instrument actually works is a whole other issue. Mm. So yeah, yeah. They, you do have anecdotal proof that it works because you know cops will say, "Well, yeah, I used it and I got a confession." Well, doesn't really mean it works. Mm. Maybe fear or something, or but to me that sounds more like a coercive method. If someone thinks that it's working, it might prompt them to admit something. But yeah, there's a there's an old uh, story about polygraph, and I think this came out from uh, from like the uh, the '60s or something like that. Uh, where no, I think it was later than that, probably the '70s, where uh, a criminal came into uh, a police department accused of a particular crime. And uh, the cops didn't have a polygraph, so they took a colander with some electric wires, and uh, and uh, the wires went over to out of sight and everything. But they told this guy they were going to give him a polygraph. So basically, they uh, uh, they put the colander on the guy's head and uh, made him answer the questions. And what they had is uh, next to them they had a copy machine, and they already had on the copy machine a piece of paper saying. He's lying. So what they did is they hit the print button on the copy machine, and it would print out, he's lying. So they would ask him a question, they would hit the printer, and out would come, he's lying, and they would show it to him, and eventually they got a confession out of him. Yeah. <laughs> so what what projects have you done, we know about Mythbusters, or, or are currently working on, like books or documentaries or anything like that? Um, well, I, uh, I finished setting up quite a number of, uh, I got about a dozen YouTube videos talking about different aspects of polygraph and, and that's been, that's been pretty helpful. Uh, so anyone who, uh, just hops on YouTube and can type in uh, global polygraph network, you'll find our, uh, you can find our videos there. Nice, um, nice. I have a, uh, a textbook out that just went into its second edition, uh, it's a textbook for polygraph examiners. Uh, regarding marital uh, uh, relationship type issues. Now, here's a problem: is polygraph schools don't teach how to test uh, for relationship issues. And when you go into private practice, you suddenly realize, well, half the testing you do is for relationship issues, <laughs> and now they haven't been trained for it. Okay. Uh, so what I've done is filled that gap by uh, creating this textbook for examiners. So uh, even though they weren't taught this information in school. Um, they can now at least get some guidance with a, with a textbook and, and doing this type of uh, this type of work because uh, a lot of examiners, uh, frankly, most examiners are former law enforcement. They've gone to uh, you know federal or, or state or, or some sort of polygraph training. They've uh, they've worked in law enforcement doing testing for serious crimes. Uh, you know, working for the government for uh, espionage, and then they come out into private practice and. Uh, you know, Mary comes up and says, I want to know if my husband's cheating. Well, they're not prepared for that. Mm. 
uh, and they're not going to do the test very well. It's, you can't do a you can't do a criminal test the same way as you can do a uh, a domestic test. It's it's a whole different animal. You you don't you don't interrogate. The client comes to me for help. You don't interrogate them. Yeah, that's right. You're hmm. there to resolve whatever their problem is, uh, or at least get them some closure to it. Um, so the textbook is out there. Um, second edition came out, uh, it was last year. We're also updating our website. Uh, so hopefully people can find us a little bit easier right now. It's, uh, not as easy to find us as, uh, as we'd like it to be. So where can people go to find out more about you and the polygraph world? Uh, my website is the easiest way. It's polytest.org. Okay. And you mentioned and, uh, YouTube. We'll what's, what's your YouTube channel name? Um, you know, I, I don't know if it actually has a name. Oh, okay. It's really just under the company, oh, the Global see. Polygraph Network. If you look, if you go to um, YouTube and do a search for Global Polygraph Network, you will find it. Okay, okay. And um, the website, again, was what? Uh, the website is polytest.org. Polytest.org. Uh, there is a website that will be coming out uh, hopefully by the end of this year. Okay. Uh, which will be giving a, a bit more information and a little more user-friendly, uh, a lot more visually friendly, hopefully. Okay. I actually went through a little bit there, and I saw that there was testings offered in different cities. And in some cases, maybe in many cases, it said it would fly in an instructor or fly in a tester. Uh, yes, yeah. A lot of times we, uh, we, we don't have somebody in a particular location, so they do have to... Uh, they do have to fly in. I think that's particularly true in uh, in Canada. Okay. Uh, such a large country with such a sparse population, the population centers are, are very far apart. So, uh, I mean, there's no polygraph examiner who could make a living uh, setting up in, uh, you know, Saskatchewan, for example. Yeah. Well, that's the only way we can provide polygraph services there is to fly our examiner in. And I, of course, I heard you so say have, you had a plane. So would that be you? <laughs> uh, no, that wouldn't be me. I have. Okay. Uh, I, we have our examiners in Canada that handle uh, handle most of those locations. I personally handle the Northeast uh, U.S. Okay. So, uh, and New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, that area. We may come back to this at some point. Uh, we're kind of like I have some local students and stuff too, and we're we're really deep digging into the whole polygraphy thing and understanding it so i just thought it was interesting never been done i've never done it so i just thought you know i really should look into this it's kind of cool you know it does get very very technical in some areas if uh if you go to the american polygraph association's website which is polygraph.org uh and go to their uh, resources area you'll see uh, some of the studies in there and and uh, one of the downsides for me is that it, it the, the statisticians and scientists behind this, uh, they've gotten so much scientific research behind it that the average polygraph examiner is actually having a hard time keeping up with the numbers. Mm. You almost have to be a, a scientist to understand it anymore. And that's, that's I think that's a, a negative. Yeah. Uh, especially if, uh, for example, I have to, I get called into court and I haven't been in court in a while, but, uh, let's say I get called into court and they ask me, uh, 
uh, you know, some question about the statistical models of, 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 of polygraph. Well, I can, I can tell them the results of the research, but if they ask me about the research itself, I'm, this is, it's not what I do. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of hard for me to answer questions about, uh, that are that are above my pay grade. Yeah. Huh. You know, it's like uh, you know, if I, you know, if I'm a carpenter and I and I and I have a hammer in my or I have a, I have a drill, uh, you know, I I can use the drill and I'm very good at using a drill. But if you ask me about how to build a drill, I probably wouldn't <laughs> be able to answer that question. No, that's right. Yeah. yeah. You know, one thing that I, I was disappointed about with MythBusters is uh, it wasn't only polygraph. They were also testing the fMRI. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and the problem is, is they were able to beat the fMRI, if you recall. Yes, so I Yes, I do. So when they came out with the uh, can, can, can a lie detector be beat, they said it was plausible to beat, to, to beat a polygraph. Even though I was 100% accurate on my rulings, they used the yeah. fMRI as part of their decision. I, I, yeah. that, that always kind of rubbed yeah. me the wrong way. So I suppose if they took the one that worked and the one that didn't put them together in that sense. But, yeah, I see what you're saying, yeah. That's exactly what they did. Yep, yep. They put together as the same technology, but it isn't the same technology. fMRI is working on how active the brain is. The, the problem is, is you can... If you sit there and start having images of your, you know, think about think about your childhood or something or mm. something you really enjoyed doing or something, you can you can artificially make your brain work. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can come up with memories. Uh, you, you can make your brain work. You think about something really bad that happened to you. Yeah. And you can make your brain work in ways like that. It's uh, and that's sort of what the fMRI is working on. It's looking for the brain activity and uh, you know. Well, that... It assumes, and and and, it, and there is some truth to that that your brain does work harder to lie than it does to tell the truth. But to know what parts of the brain are working, it gets a little. That's a little tricky. I've never heard of the fMRI being used for lie detection before that, and I've never heard of it since. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they uh, they still do offer it, but it's. Uh, I mean, I mean, it's cost prohibitive. That's the big thing. Is you yeah. know who's going to spend five thousand dollars for a test. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Well, I could it's certainly... mostly about memory. Like, I mean, for example, if 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 you were being tested on stealing a car, and um, and I showed you pictures of three different cars, one of them being the car that was stolen, well, that might work with an fMRI because your brain would activate more because you recognize this the car that you stole versus the others. So there might be some limited uses to it. Yeah. yeah. But more as a recognition tool, not a, uh, you know, not a, a truthful yeah. determining tool. Maybe with somebody that can't speak or something or has some kind of handicap, it might, might, I don't know. Oh, I can, we can, I can test people. I can test them. I don't care what the handicap is. Uh, if they're blind, I can test them. Deaf, I can. I can test almost anybody. Really nice. Hmm. Yep, they don't have to. Uh, you know, I've tested people with sign language, with uh, cue cards, um, you know, interpreters. Hmm. You know, so I, there's not a whole lot of limitations to what we can uh, to what we can test, as long as they can sit still and they understand. 
you know, we can we can probably get a test done. Yeah. Well, I have to say that uh, I am very happy that you were willing to talk to us, and I want to thank you very much for your information. Hopefully, uh, very welcome. Hopefully, our listeners learned a little something about the field. I, I was, I've always been interested ever since I was a kid. You know, it's kind of cool to think about the polygraph machine. I'm like, what's really going on there? So, yes, thank you very much for uh, talking to us. You're very welcome. Any other questions uh, that your uh, your viewers might have, they can certainly get in touch with me directly, and uh, I'll be glad to answer any other questions. Perfect. Thank you very much. All right. You're very welcome. Well, that's the end of our interview, but not quite the end of our podcast yet. Next, I want to change topics really quickly just for the last segment here and talk about knife. We've been doing a lot of knife attacks also lately, and I came across something that I thought should be shared. So I'm just going to plug it in here. Yes, he's talking about a video. You're not going to be able to see that on the podcast, but the message that he's talking about changes nothing. If there's one thing we learn, it's that knife fights are fast and they're brutal. With today's active self-protection lesson, it comes to us out of Israel, just south of Tel Aviv, and it really teaches us some important lessons about real-life knife attacks, particularly the speed at which they come, the way that most attackers attack with their knives, and how very difficult it is as a bystander if you don't have a distance force multiplier to step in and help. So the man in the white shirt here is the pub owner, and we see him outside. He's worried about somebody out there, and that's who he's worried about. This guy comes in here, and he just starts stabbing him. He gets him about three or four times there. And then as the fight continues, he hits him again, and now he starts beating him. I'm not positive if he turned the knife over at that point to do so. And you finally see some of these guys break through the bystander effect, pull him off this guy, and then now the fight is over, and they're going to try to control that knife, push him out the door, but with that many stab wounds, I don't know if the owner has made it out of there. Let's go back and learn some lessons here. And we see, number one, that as the bad guy comes in, you see that he's got that knife hidden. This is predatorial violence, everyone, not territorial violence. So the knife is felt and not seen. He hides it until the last possible moment. Now he hits him with the first one. And as he stop right here, what we're going to see is he uses that left arm and he grabs a hold of him. And we call that a leveraging arm or a gauging arm. I prefer leveraging arm because he uses it to find his distance and also to give him leverage and watch. He pulls and pushes there. That's that additional leverage as he goes and hits him. You've got to be able to protect yourself and deal with that leveraging arm. Then we see our victim here try to drive into the bad guy. But what he doesn't do is he doesn't practice the five Ds. I'm not blaming him for his death here, but what I'm saying here is he doesn't deflect and dominate the arm first, tries to dominate the man, and as we see here, it costs him getting stabbed in the guts again. So you've got to practice the five Ds, and you've got to recognize that the knife is the most dangerous thing even over the man in this particular instance. So now let's think about the bystanders, as they've worked really hard here to try to kind of figure out what the heck they're doing. Normalcy bias kicks in, the bystander effect kicks in, very hard for somebody to step in here, but they're going to try. And we see here the guy that's all the way on the left come in and he tries to finally grab a hold of him and he's finally able to do so because he's able to get behind him. You can't expect somebody to step in in front of a knife-wielding attacker if they don't have a force multiplier themselves, but this guy finally gets behind him. That's very good. Of course, I'd much rather they had a force multiplier, but they're finally able to stop this here, but I don't think that the owner made it out of this alive. It's an important lesson for us to learn. I don't think that guy woke up to that day thinking that it was going to be the last day of his life, but it was. So we talk about making sure that you're at peace here on earth in your relationships with people and peace with God in your relationship with him as well for this reason. Number two, you see how fast that knife attack comes. And you see that real-life knife attacks are not the slashing encounters that we see in Hollywood. They're brutal and they're direct. 
And number three, we saw that guy was just trying to help as best he could. He broke through the bystander effect, but boy, without a force multiplier of his own, it was very, very difficult, which teaches, teaches us about keeping our force multipliers on us so that we can cover our ass. Also, something else I wanted to address was the fact that not too long ago, 20 years ago, maybe more, it was considered bad etiquette if you, as a student, visited other teachers or trained with more than one teacher. Usually this was considered bad and you could have been expelled from schools. Nowadays, it's kind of, uh, yes, it's kind of accepted, especially in Japan. If someone goes to train in Japan, they tell you, go train with as many different teachers as possible. But there, in that situation, you are a visiting student doing a circuit. You're not really any of their personal students. Now, having said that, I just wanted to stress that even though in today's society that perhaps it is okay to visit other instructors or multiple instructors or to have more than one, you should have your primary. And unless you're traveling long distances, if there are others in the same city as you, it is considered very bad etiquette for you to train with other teachers on the same days that you're required to be present for your own personal classes. For this reason, I stress don't visit other instructors on normal training days. And while it is okay to do in general, I recommend you do it on your own time, not to take up your teacher's time. Most teachers look at their kids as their students as kids. See the slip of the tongue there even. They look at their students as their own kids. So they feel, they love, they put their effort into it. And then when you, that's like saying uh, to your father that you wanted to visit another father down the street, your friend's father, and not just visit, but call him father and, you know, have a relationship, father-son. It's kind of cheating, you know? It's like uh, like the same as your wife, say. You can't go down the street and say, I'm going to have another wife for the night and uh, treat her like with romance and love and all that stuff. You just, you know, it's bad manners. It's hurtful it is hurtful the teacher whether he'll tell you or not he may have the stoic face but the teacher will be insulted and hurt uh, he is a person and uh, the teacher relationship obviously does come before the friendship relationship a lot of I've had a lot of students personally who have uh, thought of me as their friend once they got to know me and we were friends and that's fine but remember I'm your teacher first if I do something that you think is uncharacteristic of a friendship that's because I'm your teacher first friend next I have to take on the role of the teacher but anyway without getting off topic the bottom line is just don't visit other local teachers on the same nights you're supposed to be training or in the same same time slots that's all another topic again so I heard on another podcast someone saying they were talking about the Kusarifado and said that it's technically not in the nine schools of the Bujinkan. And I have to correct that. I totally disagree with that. It is definitely in Togokure Ryu for sure, because I have copies of all the scrolls, and uh, it's, it's clearly there. So whoever is, I know who it is, but I'm not one to name names. I'm not that kind of person. Um... If someone tells you that uh, something's not in the scrolls, uh, I think the same guy even said survival skills aren't in the scrolls, but it certainly is. The, 
the Kusari Fantos and the Tokokure scrolls and possibly more. I just would have to go through thousands of pages to find it. But uh, it's definitely there. So if someone says something's not in ninjutsu or one of the schools, take it with a grain of salt or ask someone who knows better. And lastly, I want to talk about certificates for gradings. So you may have noticed that the when you... Uh, you get your dates filled in on your certificates that it has the year, the month, and the, the day. Usually by a 10th down or higher does it. Uh, and it's signed by Hatsumi-sensei or an authorized representative at Hatsumi-sensei's office. Uh, usually, uh, if not Hatsumi, I know Furuta-san has been doing it lately. But the point is that uh, they come pre-stamped or pre-drawn by Hatsumi before the 10th dance fill in the names and stuff with the era Heisei so this is a representative of the emperor Akito in Japan and uh, he gave up the throne or abdicated his throne his throne on April 30th 2019 so what does this mean for grading certificates that means that uh, when the when his son took over as emperor then it changed the era, and it went from Heisei to the current Reiwa. So while technically Reiwa started April 30th, or the day after, uh, we're still getting certificates that say Heisei. And is Hatsumi going to stop and destroy all those certificates and then start with brand new ones that say Reiwa? Well, here's what I was told, because I asked a question. It's like, what do we do with these certificates? Because I still have a couple certificates here that say Heisei on it. And I was told in J by Japan that, yes, technically the Reiwa era started uh, April 30th or the, the next day, whatever. But he said that in a more general term, more general sense, Heisei goes to the end of the year. And Reiwa also started at the beginning of 2019. They overlap a bit as a more generic way of doing it. And I was even told, in fact, the previous emperor from before Heisei, um, when Hatsumi had certificates, he was actually giving them out three, up to three years later, was still using the same ones. Uh, so, you know, uh, what does that really mean? Um, you happen, if you get a one, a certificate that says Heisei on it, then you're lucky to get one of the last remaining Heisei certificates. It's a collector's edition. I said, that's what they actually said to me. They said, look at it as a collector edition. It's one of the last ones they'll get from Heisei and Hatsumi-sensei. So just to just so you know that there's no confusion, they may come with some Heisei kanji, even though it's technically Reiwa, but we know the difference. It's not a big deal. And that's it. If you have any questions, just as always, contact me at our website at divinewarrenijisu.com. Or you can contact me directly at divinewarrenijutsu at gmail.com. Or you can call us. Get the phone number and all our contact information is on our website. This was episode number 18 for November 2019. We will be back next month with some more things we've already got planned. And you will be enjoying that as well. Have a great day. Train hard. Don't give up. Stay safe. Signing off. Daishihan Jesus. Day.